Welcome to the Traveling Image Makers Podcast, your source of inspiration about travel photography. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride as we bring you on a tour around the world with our guests. So hello everyone. Here we have another great episode of the Traveling Image Makers podcast with your hosts, uh, Ugo Che and uh, Ralph Velasco. And today our guest uh, is Matt Payne, who is a travel and landscape photographer with a love of the, the wilderness and the outdoors. So we're going to uh, spend some time talking about uh, about those topics with Matt, who is also a fellow podcaster himself. Uh, hi, Matt. How are you doing? Good. How are you doing? Doing great. And Ralph, how are you doing? I'm well, thank you. Hi, guys. Hey, everyone. Ralph, <laughs> you just returned from, from Europe. You're back home now. I did. I got back last uh, Monday. I guess today's Sunday, so I've been back about a week. Still getting over jet lag, which is uh, my nemesis. Mm-hmm. It doesn't get any easier, but uh, it's okay. Where are you located? I'm in the Chicagoland area. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Cool. So, what what about you, Matt? Where are you located? And can you introduce yourself a little bit more to to our audience? Uh, who is Matt Payne? Sure, man. Um, so uh, I live in Durango, Colorado. It's uh, it's in the southwest corner of of Colorado, near Utah, Arizona, and um, and New Mexico. So right there in the four corners. So you know, like twenty thirty minutes north of me, I have the best mountains in Colorado called the San Juan Mountains. And then you know, a couple hours south, I've got the Bistai Badlands of New Mexico, and then I've got all the stuff around Moab near me and Grand Canyon is not too far. It's, it's a pretty sweet spot for, uh, if you're into photography, no doubt. Um, pretty much in the, in the middle of the American West, the, the wilderness of the American West. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm originally from, uh, Colorado Springs, which is on the front range about an hour South of Denver. Um, and I spent a couple of years, uh, living in Portland, Oregon before moving to Durango t- to get back to my, to my mountains. I'm uh, I'm pretty big into mountain climbing and uh, backpacking and hiking, and that's actually kind of how I got into landscape photography. I was, um, started out really young age, um, climbed my first 13,000 foot mountain when I was four, <laughs> and wow. my first 14er when I was six, um, and then I finished climbing all the 14ers in Colorado, which there's 53. I finished that in 2012. And my, my my ultimate goal is to climb the highest 100 mountains in Colorado. Um, most, all of them are over 13,800 feet, so they're they're pretty high too. Um, yeah, so you know. The mountains, <laughs> the mountains in the northwest were were not good for you. Too wet. <laughs> Not not enough yeah. not enough not enough days of sun to to go climbing. What what was the reason uh, for going back yeah, and forth well, between? You know, I didn't do a ton of mountain climbing in Oregon when I lived there. Um, I kind of regret that a little bit. I was I was uh, I had the sirens call of the craft breweries there that kept me pretty occupied. <laughs> I did a lot of beer drinking in in Oregon. 
Um, I actually only climbed a few mountains there. I did a South Sister, which is just a giant, boring volcano in the middle of Oregon that has really cool views of other volcanoes like Hood and Jefferson and and um, Broken. What is that? Broken. I can't remember the name of it, but yeah. So and then I never actually. I was thinking about doing St. Helens and Rainier, but I never, never got around to it. And you know, every every summer I was living in. Living there, I always made trips back to Colorado, and it just—it doesn't really compare for me. The Colorado mountains are just—they're more concentrated and more jagged and ragged, rugged. So they're just more—I mm. don't know—they—they they do more for me. Okay, <laughs> I see. Fair enough. <laughs> are they yeah. younger mountains than uh, out west? Is that why they're, you know, like? Well, um, I actually. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure. I'm not a geologist. Um, yeah. I was actually a geology major for one year in college. and But uh, I think the difference for me is that, um, you know, in Colorado, there's, I think, you know, the way that the mountains are formed is way different. Colorado is a lot more um, metamorphic, um, like jagged spires and stuff like that, kind of like the Sierras and, um, and the Alps. The Alps in, the Alps in Europe and the mountains in southwest Colorado are very similar in terms of how they were formed and how old they are. Um, and then the mountains in the northwest are pretty much all volcanoes, you know. So um, there's not really any volcanoes here in Colorado. Gotcha. I'm sure that's a difference then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So you love mountaineering, but you also love photography. How, how did you become a photographer? Yeah, so back in 2007... I decided I wanted to get back into mountain climbing, and um, I had I had already purchased like six years, something like that. Six years before that, I had a it was a Sony DSC eight two eight, which had a fixed uh, eight millimeter, eight to two hundred millimeter Zeiss lens on it. It was a eight megapixel digital camera. <laughs> um, it was actually a pretty good camera though, and. So I'd take that on all my hikes um, that I, you know, I started doing all my mountain climbing. And the more and more I got into taking pictures during my mountain climbs, the more and more I was getting frustrated with the limitations of my camera and what I could or couldn't do with it. And so I um, decided to, to get an actual DSLR. So I got a Nikon D7000 with a pretty lame little 18 to 105 kit lens and and decided to get the Tokina 11 to 16, um, and that's when I got got into doing more night photography because, uh, you know, when you're up in the wilderness at night, you see all the stars in the Milky Way, and you're like, oh, I want to take pictures of that. Um, so, um, and now for me, it's like this really tricky balance of attaining the summit of mountains and then also getting enough sleep uh, or sacrificing sleep to get the shots that you want. So, um I'd say about 50% of the time I spend trying to get a good shot and the other 50% of the time I spend trying to get to the top of the mountain. And I think as I get older, it'll just be more about getting the shots, but we'll see. <laughs> well, speaking of night photography, uh, I look at your website. Uh, you've got some just incredible shots there, and I've got an interest in uh, doing some night photography, but I, I've never actually done anything like star trails and things like that. Uh, Talk to us about what's involved, what kind of gear is required, if anything special, and uh, you know how we can 
hope to get some shots like you've gotten at, at night like that. Oh, sure. I mean, I got a couple hours to talk about it, but <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah, I'm, uh, it's, I'm really passionate about night photography. It's just, um, you know, the first time I took a photo of the Milky Way and looked at the back of my LCD, I was just blown away. Like, oh my God, I can't believe I can see that with my camera. It's so cool. Um, you know, gear, unfortunately, with night photography, I will say that gear is actually pretty important. Um, you know, because of uh, high ISO requirements and how noise affects, uh, how s different sensors um, are able to handle noise, it's pretty important to have a decent camera. Um, but, you know, as the years go on, the cameras are getting better and better handling high ISO shots. Um, so most of my night photography, I'm shooting ISO 3200 to 6400. And lately, I've even been shooting at um, 10,000 um, with the A7R2. So when I started, I was using the D7, the Nikon D7000 and a kit lens. And, you know, it only goes down to F3.5. And I was, you know, pretty, pretty limited by, by that. So it's pretty important to to get some nice to get a nice lens too you know like um you know they make them pretty affordable now like the the rokinen or the samyang uh 14 millimeters f2.8 they're they're pretty good for night shots uh you know wide wide field astro landscape work um but my kind of go-to lens right now is the nikon 14 to 24 um i've just found it does a really good job of handling coma um which is like if you look at a picture of the stars or of a city scene at night and you see like the stars or the lights look long in the corners or the sides that's called coma and most people don't notice it but the more you get into it you're like ah that looks like crap um so that's important definitely get a uh, a nice tripod because every single shot you're going to take is going to be on a tripod <laughs> obviously um you know i'm usually shooting 25 to 30 seconds um, exposures for those single exposures. Um, and then, you know, I, I learned a lot by reading um, other people's blogs. So early on for me, I did a lot of um, reading from uh, Ben Canales. He's a Portland-based photographer. I think his website um, was like, uh, I can't remember the name of it now, but it's, it's he was all about, you know, star trails and night photography and yeah, I picked up a lot of tips from him. Like, you know, there's a 600 divided by your focal length rule to determine kind of how long you can take an exposure before you see star trails in your photo or to see streaks in your stars. Um, so that's a good rule that I like to follow. Um, so explain uh, that a little bit. How to, how to, how to, just give us some quick numbers about how that works. Yeah, so if you were, let's just pretend you had a 60 millimeter lens. So if you did the math, uh, 600 divided by your focal length of 60 millimeters is 10 seconds. So that's about as long as you can take a photo for with a 60 millimeter lens before your stars will start to look um, streaky. Um, so like the wider the lens you have, the longer of an exposure you can take without noticing that. Um, you know, you know, you know, you're always going to see a little bit of it if you zoom in at 100 percent. But um, so anyway, that's the rule I like to follow. Why is it important to have a, a long time? I mean, pretty obvious for us, but uh, some, some <laughs> of our audience might not sure. realize. Yeah, so um, the longer you keep the shutter open for, the, the more light that is going to be captured by your lens and by your sensor. And um, 
you know, the your eyes don't see the night sky the same way that your camera sensor does. Um, you know, our eyes are using rods and cones, and they don't exactly work in long exposure mode, but the camera does. So the longer the exposure is taken, the 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 more light you're going to get in your photograph. And so, with that being said, it's really important. Um, to find an area that's pretty far away from cities or large cities because light pollution significantly impacts um, your ability to to see the night sky, Um, which is another reason why I like living here in southwest Colorado because the closest large city to here is probably Albuquerque, and that's like three three hours away. So um, there's not a ton of night uh, night light pollution around here. Um, so that's important. Um, and then uh, the other thing that I would say is super important is to find uh, find an interesting foreground so or an interesting scene, not just the night sky. And you know, a lot of people that are starting out with night photography, they just try to get photos of the stars themselves. But it's, it's really critical to get something really interesting um, in the foreground you know, such as some rocks or some flowers or some uh, some mountains or some lakes, you know, things like that that provide some visual interest and anchor anchor the photograph. Um, the, the, the night sky typically isn't the focus of the photograph, actually. It's just accentuating the scene that you've found. If you take a long exposure of the night sky, um, well, of course, you have some light in the sky, which are the, the stars. And I assume... You always try to shoot when there is no moon in the sky, otherwise it will be too too bright. But what about the foreground that you mentioned? That that will be completely dark. Well, what yeah, happens with the good, foreground? Good question. So uh, two things. One is actually um, sometimes a little bit of moon actually does help with foregrounds, and especially if you're shooting, um, you know, mountains or things like that. If you can get um, and I kind of discovered this on accident when I first got into it, but, you know, the moon was like, uh, it was setting at like one in the morning. So, you know, it was like a quarter moon. So the moon had set, but it was still casting light on the mountains. So it was still creating light on the subject, but not creating light to where you couldn't see the stars. So sometimes having some moon is actually beneficial. Um, obviously, if it's a full moon, the Milky Way and the stars are going to be pretty washed out. Um, so another, uh, technique that I, that I really like to use, um, when shooting night photography, and you know, this is a probably controversial for some photographers, but I like to take a, a lower ISO, like ISO hundred or ISO 400, um, shot of the foreground at blue hour. So maybe like an hour after the sunset, um, and then just keep my camera in the same spot, um, and then reshoot the night sky, you know, in a couple of hours and then blend that kind of blue hour foreground with the night sky. So you can get those nice details in the foreground without introducing a ton of noise, um, and then still get the stars and the the night sky. Another technique that I've done if you don't want to shoot at blue hour is you can, using the same principle, you can shoot like a a three-minute exposure with um, of the foreground, at like ISO 1600 or 2000, and then and then do the same thing. Take a ISO 6400 25 second shot of the night sky, and then blend that foreground of two and a half three minutes with the 25 second night sky shot. 
Do you ever do light painting? You know, I don't do a ton of light painting um, just because typically where I'm going, I can't carry a lot of gear. Um, I like to go, you know, up into the wilderness and the mountains and carrying a ton of lighting equipment is not usually easy. <laughs> just, just to explain for those who don't know what light painting is, you would basically carry some artificial light like a flashlight or some other kind of uh, beam and then you would use that to to paint to move that light over the foreground when it's too dark to yeah and i right i did some of the yeah exactly i did some of that when i first started out and i just found it isn't to, for my taste i don't like the um mm-hmm. the unnatural lighting of it but um there's a couple of night photographers that people should check out that have a different technique of that it's called low level lighting where they take some really low powered leds and usually they'll put like a maybe a cloth or something over the light to really have it generate almost very little light and then they put that right below the subject that they're shooting Um, and then it illuminates the subject but not in a really harsh artificial way it's just kind of like a glow Um, the two people i would recommend people checking out about that is uh royce bear and wayne pinkston they both do a lot of that, and it's it's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, I tried light painting myself with a flashlight, and yeah, it's one. It's difficult because you're you're not seeing actually what you're what you will get because it, the flashlight yeah. will throw a beam of light, and you have to be careful to spread it, to move it around left to right, uh, up and down, and, and get a uniform uh, uh, right illumination. Otherwise, it will be all spotty and, and blotchy and so on it looks horrible and the other thing is that uh, the color of a typical flashlight will be will be horrible my the one i used was very greenish so i did i when i did, did use it i actually then took one exposure and then i created two exposure from it and i did, did the different color corrections from them so i got right. cor- color corrected the flashlight and then yeah. there's the normal natural light for the sky, and then I blended the two. And then I decided it was just too much work. <laughs> totally, yeah. It's, night photography can be painful, especially if you're doing like panoramas and stuff. You know, you're doing like 10 or 15 three, uh, 30 second exposures and then blending them all. And yeah, it, it can be a lot of work, but I don't know. I think it pays off if you can, if you can pull it off for sure. Um, another thing that I would tell people is don't be afraid to just experiment with different ideas. You know, one of the things I tried once just, I thought it'd be fun to try is I was shooting, uh, the Milky Way on the Oregon coast and it was like, it was in August. So the Milky Way, it was like one in the morning and the Milky Way was basically like straight up and down horizon to horizon. Um, and it was right over this uh, this feature um, uh, by Pacific City um, um, called Cape Kowanda or Kowanda Rock. It's like a haystack rock. And what I did is I turned my uh, tri- my ball head on my tripod sideways, and then I put my my camera on there in um, portrait orientation, but it was sideways. And then I used my ball head to take vertical shots going up and over behind me of the entire Milky Way from horizon to horizon and then blended that all in together into one shot, which looked really, really cool. (laughs) So, yeah, just experiment and try different things. Um, You know, if you can stay awake. 
<laughs> Talk to us about the post-processing that you're doing on these images. What's involved there? How much uh, knowledge do we need to know? Um, you know, of course, obviously, you got to shoot in RAW because, you know, if you're shooting JPEG, it's applying an algorithm and you don't have a lot of flexibility in how you deal with the image. Um, I try to, my personal taste is to try to make the Milky Way look um, as as natural as possible, which is kind of funny to sound because it's not like our eyes see the Milky Way <laughs> the way our cameras do. But, you know, I don't tend to like the purplish looking Milky Ways or the super, super blue or red milky ways i like it to look kind of you want your you want your night sky to look relatively um dark black to slightly blue but not a different color than that um that's something i learned over time and so i'm usually adjusting my white balance to like 3800 um um on the cooler side of things there and then like maybe plus five or plus ten on on purple or magenta or whatever um and then you know if you're doing any panos you're going to want to apply those same kind of settings before you blend them all together but um i do a lot of work in curves in photoshop um so that i can push push the darks a little darker and bring the highlights of the stars in the milky way core out a little bit so it adds some contrast um, so I'm doing most of my processing in with levels, to be honest, and curves. Um, other than that, there's not a ton of other work you need to do. I don't really do any luminosity masking or anything like that with my night images. Yeah. You mentioned that you use the, the Sony Alpha, the Sony A7. I was yeah, so reading about the recent uh, firmware upgrades on the Sony that some people were complaining about because they they were talking about, I wasn't really following because I don't shoot Sony myself, but they were talking about Star Eater algorithm yeah. or something. What, what's, the, what's the scoop with that? Was it, was it fixed? What, what was it? And was it eventually fixed? Yeah, supposedly, um, I think it was like firmware 3.3. Uh, they basically made it to where they applied... Uh, an algorithm to any long exposure and it would reduce the noise of the image but but it was also like literally taking stars out of photos that were there um, and so a lot of people complained and my understanding is that like three or four days ago they released a firmware update that fixes that um, I think I never actually upgraded my firmware to that version that did that so I never had the problem um, so I wasn't all incensed because you know it's, you can't go backwards with firmware usually. So it's, um, but yeah, there was a lot of people that were pretty pissed off about it, including um, I think Ian Norman who runs a Lonely Spec. He was pretty pretty pissed off about it, which totally understandable. <laughs> yeah, I think he wrote an article. I don't know, the title was something about I'm not going to shoot Sony anymore. <laughs> right, <laughs> which is like funny because like. Three weeks later, they released an update and fixed the problem. Yeah. I think people tend to overreact about these kinds of things. And yeah, but I mean, yeah, Ian is doing a, is doing a lot of yeah night sky work, and if he suddenly starts uh, finding fewer stars than he was uh, expecting to get, I can I can understand he'd be a bit pissed off. Oh, absolutely! And who's this, who knows? Maybe his article um, spurned uh, Sony to actually take action. I don't know, but. Um, 
there's actually some people who actually want to reduce the number of stars in their night photos to accentuate the Milky Way core. So, it, I don't know. It's it's funny. People yeah. get pissed off about stuff and <laughs> take it out on the internet. Uh, Ralph, you, do you have any more questions about this uh, topic? Uh, so, you, you, do you kind of stick to that southwest corner near Durango of Colorado, or are you traveling all the all over the world doing this type of photography? Do you have some favorite locations? Oh, it's so funny uh, when you guys sent me your questions. The that one question was about where are your favorite places to shoot outside of the United States, and I was like, ah, well, I wish I have ever been outside of the United States to take photos. I've never been anywhere else, so um, definitely would like to. Um, since I got into photography, um, some of my favorite places uh, to shoot the Milky Way and stuff like that, uh, Kauai is pretty cool. Um, there's not a lot of light pollution in Kauai, um, and you get the ocean, so you can do some really cool Milky Ways um, over the ocean, which is pretty neat. Um, I really like uh, shooting the night sky in Utah and Arizona. Um, I, I just got back a few weeks ago from a trip to Monument Valley and got some really cool star shots out there, um, which are, because there's, you know, there's just no cities out there. So there's the night sky is just, it's super dark and pure. Um, other than that, my personal, uh, favorite subject to shoot the Milky Way with is mountains. So yeah, I'm shooting, Anytime I do any of my hikes and climbs, I'm really trying to get Milky Way shots if I can or star shots over the mountains and stuff like that if the clouds cooperate. <laughs> so let's say, let's say you want to go to, the, to Monument Valley say, okay, uh, to shoot the Milky Way. Uh, how do you know when and where will the Milky Way be visible over a specific, I don't know, you want to do the, the Three Sisters, is that how it's called? Uh, specific spire on on monument valley how do you position yourself yeah so when i first got into it there wasn't a lot of tools um that helped you figure that kind of stuff out so i just kind of paid attention to where the milky way was at at different times of the year so generally speaking um in the northern hemisphere uh the milky way um starting around march um and then through uh, early, early October, it's visible and it kind of shifts in the night sky from starting out in the east in the early part of the year and then kind of more towards the west, um, but always in the south part of the sky. Um, so that was always kind of a helpful thing for me. And then, of course, the time of day shifts as the year goes on, just based on the way the the Earth's rotation is um, the, and the axis, the tilt of the Earth. But, um, you know, in the last couple of years, what's really, really helped me is, um, is an app called PhotoPills. Um, it, it's freaking awesome. You can put your location in. It uses Google Maps. Um, and then it'll show you exactly where the Milky Way will be, what elevation, what direction, what times of day. It even has an augmented uh, reality thing where you can turn that on and point your phone at Wherever you're looking, it'll show you where the Milky Way is going to be at a diff certain part of the day. Um, I use that app all the time now to plan um, plan where I'm going to go different for different trips. What you know, it 
before, you know, it's obviously it's a lot easier to find an interesting foreground in the daytime. So, you know, I'll go find something really interesting during the day, use that app to determine where the Milky Way is going to be at, and then find the foreground that I want based on where the Milky Way is going to be, and then plan on being there at that time for that for that scene. So, so night photography is one of your specialties. You're obviously very, very good at it. And uh, people, you have to go visit Matt's website. We'll put a link in the show notes. But you also do a lot of daytime landscape photography. And, and that's you've got some phenomenal work there as well. Uh, w- what is your feeling about the presence of airplane vapor trails when you're doing landscape photography? Um, yeah, it's... I have mixed feelings about about uh, contrails. Um, on one hand, if there's no clouds, they actually can create some interest because you know it will look very similar to a cloud and have that nice light. Um, but in general, they're not the best. <laughs> I don't like them too much, and a lot of times um, I've been known to remove them. So, um, but you know. You can't really do much about it, except uh, try to avoid them or incorporate them into your shot if you if you want. But yeah, I it's funny you mentioned that because I'm actually more I get more upset about uh, the airplanes in the night photos because <laughs> they have their lights on at night and you have to go in and especially if you're doing a star trail you have to go in and actually get rid of every single airplane that flows flies by over that hour or two or three hour shot. So. Um, but yeah, airplanes are a nuisance for sure. <laughs> Interesting. So uh, I think we talked a lot about night photography, but I would, before we uh, wrap up this episode, I would like to, you to to talk a bit more about a few other topics, and um, uh, specifically one that was uh, I wanted to ask is that you um, you said you say on your on your about page you say that you. Try to head out into the world to take photos whenever you can. But I, I think, if I understand correctly, you also have a full-time job in addition to being a pro photographer and a podcaster. So how do you manage to reconcile the two? Uh, and I assume that mountaineering and going up the mountains to take photographs takes up a lot of time. So um, how does that work for you? <laughs> uh, not very well. I mean, if I... <laughs> If I had my choice, I'd be uh, out shooting and climbing mountains all the time. But, uh, you know, I got to pay the bills. And um, I actually really enjoy the line of work I'm in. Um, So, yeah. So basically what that means is that um, every trip that I take, I have to make the most of it. And so that that involves doing a lot more planning in terms of um, uh, researching the weather and the conditions and... um, knowing exactly where I want to go and um, and just committing to it and having all my ducks in a row so that when I actually have that two days off or three days off that I can get on it and, and make the best of it. Um, that's one of the biggest reasons why I wanted to move to this, to, to this location because instead of driving five or six hours to get to a location like this, I can be there within 20 minutes and spend more of that quality time being in that moment. Um, so, you know, it, it is tough incorpor- um, balancing, you know, rate, I have a nine-year-old son and a wife and 
um, trying to balance, you know, being a dad and a husband and I have a pretty intense full-time job. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, I probably only get out to take photos maybe five or six time, times a year, maybe, maybe more depending on the year. So it's just maximizing the opportunity and doing tons of research beforehand. And, and then I would say, I sacrifice other things like sleep, <laughs> um, you know, going out to re restaurants or hanging out with friends, you know, you, you got to sacrifice, you have to make time for what's important. So, you know, that means you're going to not watch as much television. You're not going to uh, just hang around the house. You know, it's, yeah, you just got to make it a priority and, and commit to it. You know, when I, when I was getting after it, uh, with my mountaineering and finishing the 14ers, I had my entire uh, summer planned out from from every weekend, so like starting in February. I had I knew exactly which mountains I was climbing, which weekend, how I was going to get there, how long it was going to take, what route I was going to use. So it just involves a lot of research and homework and dedication. I would mm. say. <laughs> well, for the. The little time you can dedicate to it, you manage to, to obtain really great results. I mean, you're a quick learner. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so, Matt, uh, uh, Ugo mentioned earlier that you are a fellow podcaster and you've got your own podcast called F-Stop, Collaborate and Listen. Tell us about that podcast and uh, what, how'd you come up with that title? All right, cool. So, um, well, obviously the podcast, well, maybe not, obviously, but um, the the name is kind of a double entendre. So I was trying to come up with a clever name for my photography podcast. <laughs> and so I thought, you know, maybe using the word F-stop. And then I was like, what else can I add in there? And um, my wife actually came up with the name because it's uh, it's lyrics from a Vanilla Ice song from the 90s, you know, Ice Ice, Ice Baby. Um, so it's like, you know, stop, collaborate and listen. Um, so it just kind of went well with it. But um, I also um, I like the title because it kind of embodies some of the things that I think um, are missing a little bit right now in photography, in landscape photography, especially. Um, uh, I don't know. I think, Ugo, I, I remember reading a blog post you had about I think it was titled, Will the Real Landscape Photographers Please Stand Up? Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I remember that blog post from a couple of years, maybe a year, a year or two ago. And, um, you know, there's just, it seems like um, there's a lot of poisonous um, attitude and jockeying and egos and things like that um, in the landscape photography world. And I really wanted to um, dispel that as best I can um, because I think that we don't gain anything from people arguing about processing methods or composites or or like oh that photo looks like crap and why did you post it to 500 px and oh you blended out this like it's art and let's all like support each other and collaborate and learn from each other so um the what gave me the idea to do the podcast was um when i first got into photography um in 2011 there I couldn't really find any podcasts that were specific to landscape photography to help me learn. Um, and so um, I know that there's other ones now, but I really wanted to um, just have some casual conversations 
with other landscape photographers about our love for doing landscape photography and hopefully people can be inspired by listening to those conversations and and cut through all the negativity that's online and 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 learn to collaborate and listen to each other instead of voicing our opinions loudly about what we don't like <laughs> so for me that's what it's about sure to put a link in the show notes so that other people can uh, check it out uh, anything else you, you would like to add before we uh, wrap up this episode, which has been very, very interesting and I think very useful. Lots of information about uh, night photography, that it's a fascinating subject and something that um, myself living in Europe, I mean, I don't have the benefit of living uh, in the middle of nowhere in Colorado, three hours from the nearest town. If you live in Europe, you're at most three minutes <laughs> from the nearest city. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so yeah. I'll... Uh, I cannot practice it as much as I would like, but um, definitely something that I that I love doing when I can. Well, but you do have you know Norway and Iceland not too far away, which has some pretty great opportunities for that kind of stuff too. Yeah, I think the, the last, especially the aurora, you know, the the last Milky Way shot I did was no, was not the Milky Way, but was it because it was summer? But the the last uh, night sky I took was in Norway, indeed, because it was. Really dark there, and uh, well, Greek islands are also a good place. Mm. Some of them. Oh not, not, yeah, not, I've seen some not, some not, good work from not the some big, people. Not the big, not the big ones, not the very populated, very touristy ones. But if you go on a smaller island where there are not so many cities, and in summer you got very clear skies, uh, it's uh, it's really beautiful. That's uh, that's a good place to go in Europe for for Milky Way or night sky photography as well. All right, cool. uh, Ralph. Anything else you would like to to say? No, I just wondering, Matt. You got anything coming up that uh, people should know about? Where can we find you online? All our, uh, you know, any social media outlets. Where can people you know, follow you? Um, yeah, so you know, I'm on pretty much all the all the big ones. Uh, Instagram, uh, it's at Matt Payne Photo. Um, Flickr, I post a lot on Flickr too. Um, I actually, one of the few people that still uses Flickr, I think it's, I actually like it. Um, uh, my, my website is mattpainphotography.com and uh, Facebook, you can just, you know, search for Matt Payne Photo. It'll pop right up. Um, and as far as what I have coming up, you know, um, nothing too crazy. You know, I've, I've got some backpacking trips planned this summer, um, with my wife. So trying to get her more into joining me on some of these adventures so that, uh, you know, it's not just me and I don't feel bad for leaving my family behind. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I, I hope to get some, some good shots on, on some of those hiking trips and, uh, maybe a couple of mountain climbs this summer. Um, and, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not doing any workshops or anything like that. Um, not enough time. And, uh, honestly, my full-time job keeps me more, more than busy. So, um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I appreciate you that. Appreciate at you least asking. for a while, at least for a while, I know how those things go. People get sucked into photography. <laughs> right, 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 right. More and more. Okay. Uh, good. What about you, Ralph? Have you got anything coming up? Yeah, I've got, uh, a trip to copper canyon mexico coming up in august i've got some spots left on that uh, trip to romania 
think I've got uh, three or four spots left on that in September. Uh, India and Cambodia are filling up quickly. So a lot of nice trips coming up before the end of the year. And so people can go to my website at photoenrichment.com for more information. And you can also follow me on all the social media networks at Ralph Velasco and at Photo Enrichment. How about you, Hugo? What do you have coming up? Well, I'm coming to, to Chicago to, to meet you among all the other fine people okay. at the Out of Chicago uh, Photography Conference. In, uh, well, I think when this episode goes, uh, goes live, it will be in a few days from then. So when people are listening to this, I'm probably getting ready to pack my bags and uh, head over to, to Chicago. And you just want a little, uh, little announcement. Uh, we, I have a, a photo tour of uh, the Italian Riviera and the Cinque Terre region coming up uh, in October. Uh, we had to change the dates. Uh, so the new dates, if people are checking out the site before, we had to change the dates. The new dates are October 26th to the 30th. And you can find everything at my uh, tours website, which is mediterraneanphototours.com. And for everything else about me, you can find everything at my website, ucphoto.me. So, I'd love to come on that trip, Ugo. I, I want to go to Cinque Terre so badly. Unfortunately, I'll be in India at that time, but uh, I would love to get there, especially with local like you. You know, Ralph, if you come to Italy, I just live so close to that area that I can just... Uh, at the last minute, jump on a train and, and go there and we can go there together or with anyone else who wants to come to Italy and spend maybe a couple of days in the, in that area with me. I'm available for uh, private tours as well. So, yeah, sure. I'm going to take you up on that. We're going to do it. Great. <laughs> okay, so uh, thanks again, Matt, for being with us today. And uh, I've, I'm already oh, my subscribed. Pleasure. I'm already subscribed to your podcast and I recommend everyone else. You've got some great guests. Some of them have oh, been on our podcast as well. But um, it's pretty new, right? But it's, uh, I think it's great and people should definitely check it out. And we'll put a link in the yeah. show notes as well. Yeah, I've got uh, David Thompson coming up and David Kingham coming up. So we're looking forward to those two interviews. Okay, that's F-Stop, Collaborate and Listen. You can find it on iTunes. And we'll put a link again. All right. Uh, so thanks again, everyone, for listening. And uh, until next time, now it's time to go out and shoot. <laughs> thanks. So long, everyone. <laughs>